How many underwent an attitude adjustment last week? <laughs> a lot of people stood. If you were here last night, you underwent an attitude adjustment, right? Conclusion of the service. I want to talk to you a little bit more about this uh, whole idea of uh, having a good day, literally, loving life and seeing good days. That's what we want, isn't it? We want to love life. Jesus said, I came that you should have life and have it to the full. John chapter 10. And so we want that. We long for that. So if you'll look with me again at 1 Peter chapter 3, we look at with me at verses 8 through 12 one more time. Peter says, finally all of you, of course this was our verse for the week, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, and humble. He said, do not repay evil with evil, insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As I suggested to you last week, the the key phrase in that passage that we are using to kind of jump off from is found in verse 10. What's the key phrase in verse 10? Who knows that? Whoever would what? Love life and see good days. That's our key phrase. That's what it's all about. And so as we contemplate loving life, as we contemplate seeing good days, we want to know how does one love life? How does one really see good days, right? And obviously, the society around us has found and formed its own opinion about what it is to live a good life, isn't it? How many of us grew up with a, with a view of life and how to have the good life, and it's not led necessarily to the good life? Led to frustration, grief, sorrow. And so the, the world around us, our society, has formed its own opinion of what the good life is. What, what does the world say composes the good life? What is everybody aspiring to? Wealth, power, fame, possessions, the next best this, that, or the other thing, right? Toys, right? The body beautiful, and on and on and on, right? So the world focuses on a whole bunch of things. I came out of that world. You came out of that world. And to some degree, some of us are still holding on to some of those things, saying, if I just had, if I just had this, if I just had that, my life would be better. I would have a better life. I would, have my, I, I would love life, and, and I would see good days. And so, so we have this dilemma of, of the baggage we bring with us into the church, of still believing that the stuff of this world is going to give us a good life. Give us the good life. But the question is, is that really the path 
to the good life? Is it really the path? See, we would say intellectually, well, no, we know it's not really the path, Pastor. But again, are we living our life as if it were the path? Am I making sense? Are you with me on this? Far, far too many Christians uh, today, uh, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, are, are living their life just for their own personal peace and prosperity. They don't want to be pressed. They don't want to be challenged. Sacrifice is not a word necessarily that they want to apply to themselves in real terms. So how do we find the good life? How do we love life? How do we really see good days? In fact, what is a good day? A lot of interpretation of that. A good day is absence of problems for most, right? I just got through the day. No problems. No hassles. Nothing happened to me bad. A lot of people interpret that as a good day. We say all the time, have a good day. Have a good day. What do we mean? And how does one really have a good day? Now, we noted last week, if you were with us last week, we noted the testimony of who? The richest, most powerful, wisest man who ever lived, presumably. Who's that? We noted his testimony, and, and, and he really did have it all, didn't he? He really had it all. And in having it all, we saw the testimony of one, the Queen of Sheba, who was no small commoner herself, made the trip to Jerusalem to check out this renowned king and all of his possessions. And we're told that she looked over all that he had, and she was left literally breathless. She was overwhelmed by all that she had seen that belonged to Solomon. But as overwhelmed as she was, as breathless as she was, what did Solomon say? You remember? What was Solomon's testimony? After having had it all, done it all, and seen it all, what was his testimony? Anybody remember? He said, I hated life. I hated life. You said, wait a minute. Why did he hate life? Man, he had everything. He had more money than anybody. He was the king. He had power. He had prestige. He had chariots and horses and houses and women, concubines, whatever you wanted he had. He had it all. Why does he say, I hated life? Why does he say that? Well, he goes on tells us because it, it, it became very apparent to him, very clear to him, everything is what? Meaningless. A chasing after the wind. In other words, you, no one is going to find their, find their fulfillment, no one's going to find meaning and purpose for their life in stuff. And this world and the things of this world. That's the reality. And many of us have not yet come to that settled conclusion. We're still chasing the world. We're still chasing after the love of life and seeing good days in the wrong places. He hated life. He hated life and he had everything that should have constituted the good life by our popular standards. 
Just take a look back with me. Turn back to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're just going to review quickly, get a sense a little more closely how Solomon, who apparently had everything his heart could desire, everything that constitutes what we would call the good life, how he hated life, how he could possibly have hated life. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Just read these verses with me. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. All that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Isn't that amazing? What's he saying there? He's saying, I tried to evaluate life. I wanted to look at everything under heaven and to discern it, to to pursue the good life. I examined everything. And in verse 14, he says, the first thing that he discovered is that the good life is not found in all the great accomplishments of men. All that people do. He says, I looked at all of the great things that have been done, and it was nothing. It was nothing. Meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Look at verses 16 through 18. He says, I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the what? After the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. And the more knowledge, the more grief. Wow. Can you imagine that? What's he saying? He says, first of all, I thought that the good life might be found in great accomplishments. But guess what? It wasn't there. It wasn't there. Then I thought the good life was in education. What was his conclusion? It wasn't there. I became wiser than anyone else. And I found no satisfaction there. Turn over to chapter 2. He tries something new. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolishness. And what does pleasure accomplish? You see, he found out that the good life wasn't in pleasure. Laughter really didn't bring him what he was looking for. Look at verse 3. He has another idea. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So he says, I tried alcohol and drugs, if we can use the vernacular. Maybe the good life is in those things. And what's his conclusion? It's not. Look at verses 4 through 11. He says, I undertook great projects. 
I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delight. Uh, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Look at verse 11. And when I surveyed all my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was what? meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Wow. He had it all. And after amassing it all and doing it all and seeing it all, what's his conclusion? That's not where the good life is. That's not where the good life is. It didn't do it for him. It would never do it for him. In fact, turn over to chapter 4. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. (laughs) He congratulates the dead. Why? Because they're they're done with this life. They're done with the striving and the futility of it all. But look what he does now. He says, but better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not yet seen the evil that is done under the sun. Not only does he congratulate the dead, he congratulates those who have never been born. Why? He put it all in context. He said the the striving after this life and the things of this life to bring fulfillment, to bring meaning and purpose is absolutely futile. And empty. And yet we still strive after it, don't we? What is the good life? What is the good life? What provides the good life? What is it that can bring true fulfillment in life? So that you can lay your head on your pillow at night and go, yes. What is it? What is it? Well, we said last week that the good life is attached not to what I possess. It is attached first to what? My what? My attitudes. My attitudes about life. It's attached to my attitudes about life. See, it's a matter of how and what you think about life. It's a matter of how you approach life attitudinally. That's what the reality, that's the that's first of four absolutely critical dynamics that we are to embrace if, in fact, we are to love life and see good days. It starts with my attitude, right? Starts with the right attitude. Not just any old attitude. It starts with the right attitude. And what's the right attitude composed of? Look at verse 8. First Peter What's the right attitude composed of? 
Five things, right? We studied those last week. We rehearsed them again tonight. These are critical for us to know and understand. These are critical for us to embrace. If you're to have the right attitude, if things aren't well with you, it's not well with your soul, it starts with attitude, not just any old attitude. The right attitude. And the right attitude is spelled out by God. In verse 8. In verse 8. Should we embrace this? Should we embrace all five of these qualities? Should we be people who are very, very serious about living harmoniously with one another? Should we be people who very, very seriously embrace being sympathetic, being willing to suffer with others? Are we, being, are we people who should be very, very serious about being uh, loving brothers, compassionate, humble? See, what Peter is saying is that every Christian is going to find life rich and rewarding, living and loving life if, he, if that Christian is living harmoniously, if that Christian is being sympathetic, if that Christian is loving, if that Christian is compassionate and humble. You're going to have a great life, a full life, a rewarding life. Those are all components of the right attitude. I can't underscore that enough. The right attitude. What should my attitude be? Just any old thing? Any old attitude? No. There is a right attitude composed of five very specific components. Have I made my point? (laughs) Now there's more than the right attitude. The second dynamic that's important for us to know is found in verse 9. This is the right response. And more particularly, the right response to evil. The right response. Read verse 9 with me. He says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter says very simply that no matter how you're treated, don't retaliate. Say that with me. No matter how I'm treated, don't retaliate. Is that difficult? It's the hardest thing in the world. (laughs) It's the hardest thing in the world. Don't retaliate. If you want to love life, if you want to see good days, first have the right attitude. And secondly, learn to respond in the right way no matter what comes your way. Learn to respond in a manner that will honor Christ. It may be that you are unfairly accused. It may be that you are unjustly treated, as certainly were the Christians of Peter's day. Would you agree? Peter's writing to people who are suffering terrifically, unjustly treated, not tolerated. And yet he tells them how to respond. The right response means no retaliation. Write that down. The right response means no retaliation. No returning evil with evil or insult with insult. You mean to live life? You mean to see good days? 
What's your attitude like? And what are your responses like? When you're treated unfairly, when you're ridiculed, when you're suffering persecution. This is a basic spiritual principle. A basic spiritual principle. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me. Flip back to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a spiritual principle. That's something that that Christ gives us. He just sets it out for us. How are we going to respond to other people? Or are we just going to react to them? Turn back to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Further on in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Apostle Paul, picking up on Jesus' teaching, says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, why does he have to add that last part? Bless and do not curse. Because he knows that those who persecute us, it's very natural for us to what? Curse them back. What do you mean my mother wears combat boots? Your mother wears combat boots. Right? Isn't there that natural impulse, natural impulse, that when you're cursed, when you're maligned, when you're, someone says something to you that cuts you, you want to cut them right back. Look at verse 17. He said, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Yeah, but what about my brother-in-law? You don't know him. (laughs) Do not repay anyone. Yeah, but anyone evil for evil. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Look at verses 19 through 21. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. All right, God, I won't get him, but as long as I know that you're going to get him. (laughs) It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. All right, get him, God. Does God want to get him? God want to get him? Yeah, he wants to get him what? Saved. And guess who he wants to use? You, that's right. Not me, you. (laughs) Say us. He wants to use us. 
So he says, on the contrary, instead of taking revenge, instead of, instead of passing insult for insult, injury for injury, and so forth, here's what you should do. If your enemy is hungry, what should you do? Ooh, man. If your enemy is thirsty, what should you do? And then he says, in doing this, you will what? You'll heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? It means they're going to come under some heavy conviction. Let me put it to you in, in, a, in another way. Let me paraphrase it. Kill him with kindness. That's what he's talking about. That's our response. Not retaliation, not taking revenge. Even our enemy. And when we find our enemy in a position of great need and suffering, it's easy and delectable to sit back and gloat and saying, ha ha, finally, what goes around comes around. <laughs> finally, you're getting what you deserve. No. No. Where to what? Where to go minister to him? Where to go minister to him? You say, yeah, but you don't understand. If I go minister to him, they're going to just take advantage of me. So? So what? So what? What are the, what are the, what are the qualities? What are the, the, the characters of this new attitude? Humble, humble. No one takes my life from me, I lay it down, Jesus said. Yeah, but I don't want to be a doormat. Why? Why not? What's the big deal? What's so special about you? What's so special about you? Well, my pride. Yeah, there you go. There you go, we got it, we got it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? This is a spiritual principle. Love with a person with the right kind of attitude. Stay with me now. A person with the right kind of attitude. It is very, very difficult to upset that kind of person. Would you agree? It's very difficult to upset that kind of person. When that person is persecuted, treated unkindly, unjustly, with hostility, guess what? They don't react. They don't react with vengeance. They don't react with bitterness. They don't react with hostility. They don't retaliate verbally or indeed. Why? Because their hearts are at peace. They know whom, in whom they trust. They know who has their life in his hands. Their hearts are at peace. They're quiet. No root of bitterness grows up. No anger. It all starts with what, though? Attitude. Attitude. What's my attitude? I mean, you can be chasing after all the stuff in this world. You can blow off what I'm saying, and some people will. They say, ah, I hear what you're saying, but I'm still going to go do my thing, and I'm going to, I'm going to have this, I'm going to get that, I've got my goals in life, I'm going to press on. You know what? You're just going to be frustrated, frustrated, frustrated in terms of your own, your own real peace inside. That's the reality. 
How can I say that? Because the Bible says it. That's not my opinion. That's just what I think. It says it right there. I'm just echoing God's sentiments. The truth. If you really want to love life, if you really want to see good days, happy days, fulfilling days, meaningful days, then very simply, exhibit the right attitude. Exhibit the right attitude and the right response in the matters of life. Respond. Don't react. You know, reacting is a thoughtless process. It's an impulsive, I'm reacting, I'm reacting. Responding is a thoughtful process based on a whole new frame of reference. That's that attitude we've been talking about. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul says, same thing, he says, to this very hour, this is his own testimony, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands, when we are cursed, we what? When we are persecuted, we what? Endure it. He says, when we are slandered, we answer kindly. That's Paul's testimony. That should be the testimony of all of us. We do a lot less marriage counseling if husbands and wives would change their attitude just to begin with. Would you agree? You want to be a happy person when you're reviled? You want to be a happy person when you're mistreated? When you're falsely accused? Then bless that person. You say, all right, I won't retaliate. I won't say anything, but I've got to do something good. Bless! See, on the negative side, if I can use that way, that description, you don't do this, but you do do this. You don't curse. You don't retaliate. You don't act in vengeance. You bless. You bless. You say, oh, thank you so much. God bless you. I needed that. Thank you for your concern for me. I did that one time. One time. I got, a, I got a letter that was pointing out a number of my flaws. And uh, it was kind of a painful letter to read. And so, you know, I just, I wanted to just write back and say, let me just tell you. But I happened to be reading Matthew's Gospel. You know. And so I responded back and I just said real simply in this letter, I said, you know what? I want to thank you for your concern. And I appreciate your, your, your input to my life. God bless you. Do you know that I got another letter back from that person? Much more gracious, much more conciliatory than the first letter. Bless those who curse you. Bless them. Whether you're rightly or wrongly accused, bless them. Bless them. Again, from Romans chapter 12, verse 20, our blessing, our blessing has the amazing effect of convicting our enemies 
of their own attitudes. But even if that were not the case, even if that did not happen, even if they weren't convicted of their own attitudes by our returning blessings for cursings, it's still right not to retaliate, and it's still right to bless, isn't it? And don't be a Christian. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, don't be a Christian who has a critical, vengeful, slanderous, mean mouth. Don't be that kind of person. Because the rest of church is not even to associate with you. Don't be known as that kind of a person who retaliates. In the next chapter, he says, the kingdom of heaven is not even occupied by such as these. If you say, and I hear this, I say, people say, well, I love Jesus. Well, clean up your act. And they don't clean up their act. Don't tell me you love Jesus, because you don't. Jesus said it himself. He says, why do you tell me you love me and you don't do what I tell you? It's obvious, he's implying, that you don't really love me. So we want to be people who are known not for dirty mouths, right? Not for retaliatory spirits. So again, what's the, what's the ideal response for a persecuted believer being treated in a hostile way? What's the ideal response? To love our enemies and return blessings for cursings, isn't it? That's our response. Turn to your neighbor and say, you know what? Tomorrow, if you're treated cruelly, unjustly, mean-spirited, if someone says some horrible thing to you, what should you do? Share that with each other. What should you do? Bless and not curse. (laughs) Okay, okay, that's enough. That's enough, that's enough, that's enough. Don't get carried away. You say, well, how, how exactly can I bless? How exactly can I bless? Let me give you four, four simple things that you can do to bless someone who persecutes you, to bless an enemy. Now, remember, it all starts with what? Attitude. If your attitude isn't right, you're not going to be able to pull this off. It's not going to happen. It always starts with attitude, the right attitude. Because it's the right attitude that allows you now to be a blessing to those who are mistreating you. So here's four simple examples, four simple ways to bless someone. First, love them unconditionally. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. He says, love your enemies. Love them. Love them and pray for them. Yeah, but you don't understand my enemy. You still need an attitude work there. So you need some work on your attitude. If you're working towards being harmonious, if you're working towards being what? Sympathetic, loving, compassionate, humble. You won't kick against the goads. You won't argue against this. It starts with your attitude. Then you'll be able to, to love them unconditionally. You'll see them through eyes of compassion. You'll understand their condition, their situation. You, like Jesus, will say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And pray for them. 
Pray for their salvation. God, turn their heart towards you. Help them, Lord. Open their eyes. Cause the scales to fall off their eyes. Lord, Lord, send your spirit. Minister to them. Love them unconditionally. Not because they love you. Not because they're nice to you. Love them unconditionally. And pray for them. Secondly, serve them. Serve them. Serve them. Serve them. Third, be thankful for them. Be thankful for them. Thankful? Are you crazy? No, be thankful for them. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, always giving thanks to God the Father for what? For everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, what? God works all things together for our good, right? So you give thanks for these people. Why? Because you know that God's using them in your life. They're there for a purpose. They're there for a reason. They're there for your growth. They're there for you to have an opportunity to reach out so that they may know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love them. Pray for them. Serve them. Thank God for them. Fourthly, learn to speak well of them. Learn to speak well of them. You know, the the word that Peter uses in this passage when he talks about blessing is the same word we get the word eulogy from. If you know anything about a eulogy, a eulogy is to what? Is to speak well of and to praise. And so when you're talking with other people about this person, you speak well of them, you praise them. But it all starts with what? My attitude. i got to have the right attitude to be able to do this. One flows to the other. And you know that what, what all of this sums up to? You know what all of this blessing, not retaliating, you know what it all sums up to? One word. Who can think of the word? Begins with F. The F word. Forgive. You're right. Forgive. (laughs) Forgive. Because that's what allows you to respond in a loving way and not to retaliate. That you forgive. That you forgive. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 21 through 23. To this you were what? called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example you should follow in his steps he committed no sin no deceit was found in his mouth when they hurled their insults at him he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly that's what it's all about that's what allowed him from the cross to say father forgive them they were yelling all sorts of things at him mocking him Hanging on the cross. What allowed him to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's because he refused to retaliate and he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
Beloved, again, if you want to love life and see good days, learn to have the right attitude. Learn to cultivate the right response, no matter what happens. No other response is tolerable. No other response is tolerable. Now look at the last part of verse 9 of our passage. He says, because, because to this you were, oh, here comes that word again, what? Called. What are you called to? You're called to, among other things, inheriting what? A blessing. We're called to inherit a blessing. So out of all of this, guess what? Our life is going to continue to overflow in blessing. We're going to love life. We're going to see good days. We're going to, be, we're going to get blessed out of this. You were called to this, he says. You were called to this, that you might inherit a blessing, a blessing, a gift without merit. May I say it that way? A gift without merit. Instead of the vengeance and the wrath of the God we've offended. Have we offended God? Grievously. What do we deserve? His wrath. We deserve death. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. Do we deserve a gift? Do we deserve blessings? So because we, we have been called to a blessing, beloved, we should know well how to give a free gift of forgiveness to someone else. We should be willing to extend to others the undeserved, unearned, unmerited free gift of forgiveness because we have received it from God. How many are thankful that God's forgiven you? Oh, man, do you treasure that? That's the greatest treasure. That's the greatest treasure. Forgiveness. I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven. I should turn around and extend that forgiveness to others. Would you agree? Turn to Matthew chapter 18. To Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. This is great. You'll love this. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? See, first of all, the pagan wouldn't forgive at all. The pagan would what? Retaliate. Right? And the Jews had a rule. You would forgive three times and after that you get them. Three times. And after that, you get him. So Peter, can you see Peter here wanting to impress Jesus? He's going to double the Jewish standard and add one. (laughs) Can you dig it? He really wants to impress Jesus with how far he's come, how much he's grown. And and he wants Jesus, expects Jesus to pat him on the back and say, Oh, Peter, you don't need to go to that extent. Double the standard and add one? (laughs) I really believe Peter's expecting that. But what did Jesus say in verse 22? 70 times 7. Now, does he literally mean 70 times 7? Or is that that a a kind of a metaphor, figure of speech, saying there's no limit? No limit on the forgiveness. Is there a limit on God's forgiveness for us? No. 
No. No, he said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. And then to kind of drive the point home, he tells this marvelous parable. Read with me verses 23 to 35. We'll close with this. He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you look down in the footnotes, 10,000 talents is several million dollars. It's the gross national product of Palestine, in effect. Well, this man was brought to him, and since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. Can you imagine? Just because he just asked. Forgive the debt. Okay. Let him go. I can go. You're free. I've forgiven you. The whole debt. Then that servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a day's wage, basically. He grabbed him and said, Guy, I've been forgiven so much, I'm going to forgive you that. No. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. How in the world is he going to pay the debt in prison? <laughs> the logic of it. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from your heart, not just your lips. How do I forgive? From your heart. How do I make that forgiveness real? You forgive. And then every time those feelings come up, you say, nope, I forgave. Nope, I forgave. You guard your heart. You don't let any room, give any room for any feelings of bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. You say, no, I forgave. I forgave. I forgave. I forgave. No retaliation. No evil. I forgave. Do we understand the point? Do you understand the point here? How in the world, how in the world could you who owe God an uncountable, unpayable debt and have received compassionate forgiveness from him, how could you possibly not forgive someone who has offended you? It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. We are to be people who are marked as forgiving people. We're forgiving people. Why? Because we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven.
And as you forgive, do you know what? That's the only way for your past to be healed, through forgiveness. That's the only way for your past to be healed. You don't carry it with you anymore. You don't carry it with you anymore. You forgave. You let it go. You can move on freely now. That's the only way to heal your past. So, beloved, if we are to love life and if we are to see good days, we must have the right attitude, right? And we must have the right response to evil, right? Next week, we're going to look at the last two, the final two of these principles so that we can have a good day. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word and your instruction. We're thankful for your truth. Lord, keep us mindful of these things. Keep us mindful of what a right attitude is really all about. Keep us mindful, Lord, of our responses. Help us, O God, to be people really do who reflect your character. Keep your heads bowed for just a moment. There may be some people here tonight that maybe you're full of bitterness and resentment and anger and you find yourself in a place where there is unforgiveness and there's uh, maybe you've been retaliating. Maybe you've heard these things for the first time. Maybe you've heard them for the thousandth time. But you know you've got to make a decision in your life tonight. I just want to pray with you. lead you in a prayer, actually, that would just help you come to that place and that decision. But I don't want to just pray by myself. I want to know that there's some people who have a, a real need in their life. You need some, some help, someone to take your hand and say, come this way. If you'd like me to pray with you, then just while everyone else's heads are bowed, you can just signal me just by lifting your hand right now. Okay, lift those hands real high. Can you say that God has spoken to your heart tonight? Okay. Now, if you lift your hand, I want you just to stand with me right now. Just stand, okay? Lift your hands with me. Reach out to your Heavenly Father. And just pray this prayer real simply. God... Forgive me. Forgive me for my wrong attitude. Forgive me, Lord, for not living harmoniously. Forgive me for not living sympathetically with others. Forgive me for not being loving, compassionate, most of all, humble. Lord, I thank you for speaking to my heart, and I thank you for your great concern and love for me that you would point these things out in my life. I do need a tremendous change in my attitude. Lord, as my attitude has changed, I know now that I, I can respond differently to those who are unkind and unjust and speak evil to me. Lord, I commit myself tonight not to retaliating, but rather to responding and responding with blessings instead of cursings. I know that this is possible. And I know that by your strength and your spirit, 
as you change me on the inside as I commit myself to this. I can forgive. I will forgive. I'll be more like you. So I commit my way to you, O oh God, and I give you thanks. Amen. 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 Praise God. Now, we do have a couple minutes. If you want to be seated, we have a couple minutes. If anybody has any questions, if I've raised any problems for you, just flip the lights on for a second, Ed, please. If you have any questions or comments or you want to clarify something, Steve? You're not too sure about church discipline? Okay. Paul says, Paul says if, you're, if a so-called brother is continuing to engage in certain practices in an unrepentant manner, that we are to not associate with such a brother. Okay. Well, what I do, if I know that someone, if a, if a professing Christian, part of the body, is engaged in sin, uh, and go talk to him, if he doesn't repent, then I'll take someone with me. And if not, then I'll bring him before the church. Uh, and uh, by that time, generally those people dis- disfellowship themselves. But as I would run into them, uh, I'll always ask them, uh, have you repented? Have you repented? If they have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace them with love. I'm embrace them with kindness. But I'm not going to fellowship with them until they've, they've demonstrated to me they've repented. So that's how I generally handle those things. Can you just clarify a little bit more on that? Like, what are the issues uh, that you would go to someone with? Is that, I mean, because sometimes people talk about really small, small things. Okay, blatant. The issues are, are obvious, blatant sin. Paul spells it out there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can look at that passage. Uh, you know, where there's, there's unrepentance. People say, well, I didn't know that was wrong. Okay, well, now you know. Stop doing it. No, I'm not going to stop doing it. Well, okay, then we need to bring another brother with her, another sister with us to, to talk to you about it. And if you're unwilling to repent and change, then we're going to disfellowship you. So we shouldn't overlook small things. Well, you don't want to be picky units over people's lives, you know. I mean, well, all of us, right. all of us are sinning, right? Are there any, any of us are perfect? No. Okay, remember, remove the what? The Log out of your eye before you try to remove the speck out of somebody else's. So you go with humility. If you see something in our life that's wrong, and it's, it's, it's really affecting the body, then you want to address it with them. Do so in love. Okay? Jesse? Well, that's the state. That's the government's response. We talked about that. Uh, earlier on in our responsibilities with living as good citizens. That's the government's responsibility to uh, extract or to uh, exhibit that kind of punishment. You don't, you don't do it yourself. No personal vengeance. What should our position be on capital punishment? Well, I believe in it. I believe the Bible teaches it. I believe that Jesus upholds it. So, Okay. Francie? Where's Francie? She had her hand up. 
I'm, I can't hear you. I'm sorry, Francie. When he was talking about um, Christian, it's completely different with a non-Christian. Yeah, yeah, you can't judge a non-Christian. Christ, Non-Christians are non-Christians. They don't know any better. If they keep, you keep yeah, you keep forgiving, keep loving them, try to win them. Try to win them. Praying for the unsaved? Pray they get saved. <laughs> now, specifically, I just, I, you know, I just pray if, if, I'm, if I'm having an opportunity in their life, I say, God, give me an open door, give me the words to say, turn their heart, prepare them, Lord. Uh, God, do whatever it takes. Save them. That's the most important thing we can pray, I think. Okay? Anybody else? That's it. Shall we say, God, we love you, and praise him one more time before we dismiss? Okay, let's stand together.